Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me. Today, we head overseas for another conversation, but this time looking at the behavioural change in measurement and evaluation, or indeed how measurement and evaluation can help you to better understand behavioural change as we start to swim in these massive data lakes that are gathering gathering around us and that we know um, as the internet of things takes hold, as artificial intelligence kicks in, we know that we're going to be dealing with more and more data. So how do we deal with measurement and evaluation? How do we make it meaningful for us in our day-to-day work? So my guest today is Phil Lynch, who's the Managing Director of Newton Insight. Phil is a pioneer in the social insight techniques, providing over 20 years experience in media measurement and evaluation. Currently, he's the Managing Director of Newton Insight in London, supporting long-term strategy and solving many immediate challenges for all sorts of clients, including GSK, Pfizer, Diageo, Procter & Gamble. He's worked for Airbus, Burberry, Mowat Hennessy, the Council of the European Union, the International Olympic Committee. He's worked for all sorts of people and he really understands this business. And he joins me now. So, Phil, thanks very much for being in transition. Hi, David. I only hope I can live up to that feeling. <laughs> I'm sure you will. But okay, let's just start with something simple before we really start yeah. to get into it because it's such an important piece as as things start to change so much and everyone's looking for evidence, everyone's looking for, you know, insights. Just what mm-hmm. is measurement and evaluation and why is it important? Right. Well, I mean, measurement and evaluation grew up through a need to really justify the value of public relations and communications. I think historically, back to the throughout the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, uh, people were maybe focused on, you know, AVEs and other quant measures, uh, so add value equivalents and other quant measures that really were just, um, you know, showing the, the, the cost saving shall we say, of PR. But people didn't really understand the value of how it helped to propel organizations forward. And I think, you know, one of the big changes that's certainly happened over the past 10 years is measurement and evaluation. So measurement handles the quant stuff, how much content you're producing, what audiences you're reaching. Uh, And then the evaluation really is what value does that actually deliver to the organization? And I think, you know, the big change over the past 10 years has been there's been a lot more emphasis on that question of what is the value of the comms that organizations undertake. Now, I know that everyone is often asked, you know, well, how can you prove that, you know, the value of what you do? And often people are still stuck in that um, advertising equivalent and, you know, some of the more, you know, basic measurement sort of metrics of, you know, how many, you know, subscribers or how many, you know, likes on Facebook or, you know, all all Mm -hmm. those basic sort of, you know, building blocks that you have around some sort of measurement and evaluation framework. But 
Well, it often seems to escape people, though. It's so People get so busy that this gets lost often and it's not baked into the way that they do their work. So what advice do you have to people to make this much more a fundamental part of what they do? Um, well, I, I would say if, if you're not doing it already, then start. Now, most frameworks for evaluation, yes, there is... Um, you know, they will begin with, you know, quant metrics. It is important to know how much uh, content you're outputting and where it's landing. And, and that's both for mainstream media and increasingly for social media. Um, but to pick on pick up on something you said in your introduction, David, that the need to understand behavior change. Now, historically, if an organization had measured uptake of its messages and its content in the media, I guess you could say that you're understanding how the media was changing in relation to your communications. Whereas now, uh, with so much consumer-generated media out there, we're beginning to get a real understanding, a proper understanding of how what an organization says plays through and begins to influence how people are thinking and even what they're doing. Um, and that can start with the simple things, like people uh, may share a post. They, they'll read an interesting uh, article in an online newspaper. They'll start sharing the links with their network. People may start liking it. They may start commenting on it. And all of this starts to you know, give us a much richer understanding of you know, what the audience reaction has been to a particular piece of communication. And I think there's a lot of, uh, there's quite a lot of activity going on in the industry now to, to understand what approaches, what voices, what types of content elicit the best, you know, the, the best responses from an audience. And I think that's been a big change because, you know, if I think back uh, to when I started 20 years ago, you didn't really have a, much of an understanding of the audience at all. You know, we had a great amount of data and knowledge around what the media was outputting on our behalf, but we didn't really know how those messages were being received by the audience. So I think that's the big change now. And that, and that links back to what I was saying about being able to uh, prove the value of communications is that now we're able to measure audience reactions just as much as we can measure media output. Mm, yeah, interesting point. But you, 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 you did say there, which I think is uh, good advice, that if people aren't involved in measurement and evaluation, the first thing is they have to do is start. So if, could you give me some advice on how do I start? How, how, how do I right. get going in this space? Okay, right. Okay. I think it's first, it's important that people understand that measurement is there to help them. Um, so don't use it simply as an audit of performance. It's actually a pathway to better performance because you get to understand what works. Um, before you start a measurement program, think carefully about the questions you want to ask and they should be relevant to your organization's objectives. And consider you know, how you will benefit from knowing the answer. Uh, so if something comes out of um, a measurement program, there's got to be a commitment to act on the findings. 
Now, if you're going to start, if you haven't done it before, the simplest place to start is what you're doing already. So just audit everything you do internally so you have a very precise understanding of where you are now. Now, that can involve what you do around brainstorming, how you research and prepare campaign materials for, for uh, comms at present and how you plan and build a campaign, what people are involved. Once you've got that, you've got, you've got the foundations to start measuring, you know, this is all the resources we have that are engaged in communication, and this is what those uh, resources produce in terms of media and audience engagement. We can then look at the other side to, you know, understand what the outcomes of that engagement are by looking at how the audience reacts to it, how it may um, influence opinions, and how it may influence actions. But the important first step to creating a measurement framework is to start with what you have and then uh, build out from there. Now, interestingly, um, you, you mentioned know the questions that you want to ask. Yeah. Can you give me mm -hmm. an example of what are those sorts of questions that I need to ask and how would I represent them in a measurement format. Right, okay. If, if we take it, say, uh, if, if I was doing, um, if we were measuring for a government campaign yep. that was around, say, uh, I don't know, drink driving. Because mm -hmm. this is something that came up a, a, a few years ago when I was sat in with some market researchers um, and, um, you know, a government department. And it was drink driving. And what they were doing was they were measuring a lot of audience metrics around how many people were being, uh, you know, just reached by this particular campaign. And I don't really think that that was the question. The, the question was, you know, what are you changing in terms of how people are discussing drink driving? Um, whether they regard it as acceptable, unacceptable, um, and whether they talk about, you know, their own, um, you know, support for what the government was doing. So rather than just say we've got this many people exposed to the campaign, it became that what, what proportion of these people are now talking about it? Uh, which, which is a different question, and I think a more relevant answer when judging the efficiency of the campaign. Okay, I've got it. So, so then by asking that question, you then measure on that piece rather than the overarching, you know, this was seen, yeah, seen by so, so many millions of yeah. people saw this ad. Yeah. Great, doesn't really matter. What really matters is how many people did it lead to take some sort of form of action. Yeah, and, and for us, that, well, that was something that we're able to do by, by looking at uptaking uh, through social media channels. Yeah. So, you know, you, we, we measure uh, discussion of the relevant uh, issue or topic beforehand. We then launch the campaign. We then track the campaign's entry into social. And we look for both the explicit mentions of the campaign, but we're also looking in a, in a broader landscape sense for if there is a general uptick in public interest in the message, you know, that the campaign is looking uh, to, to boost adoption for. Um, and very often, I, I, I think, you know, particularly in uh, social media, people don't talk about, you know, a government campaign explicitly. But obviously, if there is 
more public interest in an issue that the government is campaigning on, um, then you know through a longitudinal analysis, you can start to highlight that the government does something at a certain time, and then you know over over the uh, ensuing days, weeks, months there is a public response to it in terms of A, awareness, and B, opinion. Mm. Okay, that's fascinating. Just, so, just in terms of your team, how, how do you set up your team to be able to deliver this service? How, ma- like, how many people do you have there and what sort of roles do they have? Right. Well, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've got a very, very uh, clever research director, David Barracliffe, uh, who, who, like me, has, has spent a long time in this industry. Uh, and, you know, just to echo something that David always says to me when, when we are, you know, setting up a new project is his first words will always be, what is the question? Because uh, obviously there, there are an enormous and varied number of data points that that we could potentially capture. So what we really want to do is understand what data points are going to be most relevant to the client and what are going to answer the client's question. So that's the question, um, you know, that that's the thing that's at the front of our minds. And when you say what is the question, it's really, so what is the question as in what is the problem? Or what is yeah, it, yeah, what what yeah. is it what is the problem we are seeking to solve? Yeah, it's, or what it's is not, the... it's, it's, it's not Act Four from Hamlet. No. It's um, you know, <laughs> it, it it really is. Yeah, what is? I mean, what is the question? Another way of saying that: What is the intention of this campaign? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know what to look for, and we know the signal that that we've got to find that shows how a campaign's working, whether it's been successful or not. Mm. Um, because as I say, there, there's many metrics that, that you can pull out just, I mean, from mainstream media, but also, you know, the way that the, the media environment has ex- exploded o- over the past decade. There's so much data um, we can harvest. I think, you know, I hope I speak for a lot of clients when I say that people are suffering a bit from data fatigue and that you can't really see, sometimes you can't see, you know, the wood for the trees, that there's just too much data um, to wade through. And so, how, how do you deal it, with that problem? Because that, to me, you know, I don't think we've even kicked off really in terms of what's coming our way when you, you know, you consider all of the devices, the connected devices, the Internet yeah. of Things, you know, you know, uh, Google Home, you know, Amazon Alexa, Everything yeah. that's coming our way, you know, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, the amount of data that's coming is really going to be so much greater um, yes. than we're dealing with at the moment. So if you're overwhelmed today, how are you going to be going in, you know, a year or two's time? Well, I, th- I think it comes back to understanding, you know, what is your question? What, what, what answers are you looking for? And that really does help you to skin this, this vast data beast and uh, you know select the um, you know the the types of data that I think are going to be most relevant mm. uh, to delivering uh, an answer and, fi- and and really getting the clearest signal of how a campaign's working and what the audience reaction has been and and the one thing I, I just to finish on this particular question David about you know this this notion that data is exploding and it's it's becoming unwieldy and there's just so so much of it um the thing i'm pleased about most is that the 
the areas in which data is growing most rapidly is not on media side, it's actually on audience side. Um, I mean, you're right to highlight the fact that we live in a more connected world. I mean, everyone now has a smartphone and I think everyone's acclimatizing to being part of a connected world and it's becoming more of just a, a normal you know, lifestyle, a normal day-to-day -day thing. And what that means is, is that people are connecting and engaging in a more everyday way. If maybe a few years ago, back in, you know, the turn of the century onwards, people probably thought that social media, for example, was a bit of an echo chamber for, um, you know, people complaining about things. Uh, but now it's just become this everyday thing that people have everyday normal conversations on. Um, and that has created a you know, a rich pool of unstructured data that we, that we can dive into to really understand things, you know, from the audience's point of view. Uh, if I was to think about the first 10 years that I was in uh, measurement and evaluation, it was more understanding things from the media output side. Yeah. Uh, so all this data that surrounds us, yes, there's a lot of it, but potentially it's even more valuable than maybe some of the, the data sets we were using uh, in more, more, more simpler times. So where do you see then the, you know, the next piece of the puzzle? Because we've been focusing very much on the measurement side of it, but then there's also the evaluation piece, which is, again, yeah. I would say, when you're looking at measurement and evaluation programs, that's the weaker area because it takes time, it takes skill, Often it can take, you know, it costs more money, particularly if you're evaluating with market research organisations to get yeah. an understanding of what does this measurement mean. So what are your views on evaluation and, and how can people do evaluation effectively? Um, well, I think that's understanding how PR and comms sits within the organisational objectives. Um, you know, if, if a client hasn't really worked that one out, it's, it's difficult for us to, you know, create one for them. Uh, so if a client comes to, comes to us and says, look, you know, this is the objective, this is what we're looking to achieve, and these are the resources we're going to deploy to achieve that objective, and that might, might include, um, you know, different strands of marketing, advertising, as well as PR and communications. So then it is a case of, you know, pulling the output data from that and, and the outcomes from the campaign together to understand how they have enriched each other, how they have enriched the audience's experience and reception of the message, and ultimately whether it's delivered a stronger outcome. So it's more of an econometric approach, uh, but it's one that I feel probably is going to be adopted and used more and more uh, as, as we move on. Um, so, I mean, sorry, can, can you just ex describe that for me then? Can you just, sorry, explain that a little bit more for me? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so, you, you, we might take the, you know, some of the more simpler uh, measures, uh, quant measures for, for a campaign in terms of, you know, who it's reached and the frequency it's reached them, combine that with, you know, an understanding of uh, advertising exposure um, and, uh, you know, knit that together with either if there is an ongoing market research or customer survey um, to find out what, you know, the customers felt about that, felt about the message and the exposure to both the PR and comms and the advertising. Uh, and then you ask the, you know, your, your, your survey panel, 
how they reacted to it, um, how it's made them, you know, maybe change their thinking or change the way that they do things. Uh, and what you would see from that is hopefully what you would expect to see is a greater efficiency and a greater impact from, you know, the, these various strands of your uh, engagement strategy working together than any of them working in isolation. I mean, that's what we hope to see. Mm. Um uh, the reality is is that uh, if you're a government department, you may have a different mix of media that you use and approaches to media that you use than if you are a consumer brand. But ultimately, I think the framework remains the same, that you look to understand how using different media channels and approaches in combination delivers a stronger outcome in terms of how people have received and reacted to your campaign. We're just on a, a you raised the the construct there of panels and market research mm-hmm. panels. What's your what's your view on the value of panels? I've always been a bit dubious of this idea of, you know, paying everyone, you know, a few bucks, you know, a hundred bucks to come into a yeah. you know a room and here's a bit of food and it's sort of not quite the real world. Um, but I'm not a I, a long way away, away, you know, from a, a market research <laughs> expert in any way, shape, or form. But I've always thought, Meh, what's is there? What's the what's the value out of that? And and is there any you know true value out of you know on a Tuesday night gathering a whole heap of people in a nondescript building somewhere on the other side of town to answer questions about you know whatever it is that you're asking them? Uh-huh. I, it's, it's a very good question. It's one that I ask myself often because uh, obviously at Newton Insight, we are using social media in exactly the same way as a market research firm might use a panel or a focus group. But, you know, our focus group is many, many times larger. And the information that we're harvesting, it's not directed. Um, you know, it's very unstructured and it is very rich with opinion. So um, my view is that that is potentially a better approach uh, than having much smaller focus groups that tend to be directional. And I think that the recruitment of focus groups, you're right. Um, I'm never quite sure, um, you know, whether they are truly representative, particularly uh, in a psychological way um, to you know, a particular brand's customers or a government citizens. Um, but, you know, I, I, I guess the, the very fact that market research continues to use them and clients continue to pay for them means that people believe they have some merit. But I think over time, the big issue uh, with panels and surveys is that through social media, through the interconnections that we all now share, People are learning new things and receiving new opinions and changing their own opinions, you know, at hyperspeed. And traditional research models struggle to keep keep up with that. So if you're doing, say, a, a quarterly wave survey, you're seeing how thi- how you know the lines in the sand change every three months, then it's going to take about a month to six weeks before you actually see the results of that. So what you're looking at is data that was at best correct three to four months ago. Yeah. And, and the world has moved on. Yeah, exactly. And if, if, 
you know, whether, whether you're in government comms or brand comms, the reality is you are now dealing with the public in the now, in the today, and you're sat there with data telling you how they felt three or four months ago. Um, so I, I question how actionable it is. I mean, people will say that, you know, having a, a, pe- a dozen people in a room, you can really drill down, ask them all sorts of qual questions and get a really thorough understanding of, you know, where they are on a particular issue. And, and I would agree you can, but then I would also, you know, argue quite strongly that if you're prepared to listen to what people are discussing in social media, then you can pretty much get the same uh, le- sort of insights. But it's always changing in real time. You know, it's moving forward with the news agenda and it's moving forward in response to events. But then how do so you think- how, how do you then take out the bias of people, you know, saying one thing in social media and then behaving a completely different way, you know, outside? You know, when they're sitting yeah. behind their keyboard, the you know, keyboard warrior, they can say whatever they want, but then when mm-hmm. they, it comes to action, it could be quite different. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, last year, we did a survey on air passengers and how air passengers feel about their airlines. And for that, we harvested the opinions of a million unique passengers. So we've now got a million people sitting in the pot. And we you know, analyzed everything they had to say about their airlines and the reasons why they were saying it and what emotional reactions uh, they were giving in response to how, you know, their experience of flying with the airlines. And, you know, I think, yes, you may have some keyboard warriors who say one thing and do another, but when you're operating at a scale of a million unique people, then I think a lot of that bias washes through. Mm. And as a, as a just an interesting postscript to that, um, we, we published our data in um, the, the, the summer of 2017. And we were on BBC Radio 4 discussing it. And, you know, it, it was all very interesting. The Consumers Association released a witch report uh, in, in the late autumn of 2017, in which that was based on interviews with, um, you know, about you know, thousands of people rather than the million that we had. But the results were actually very closely aligned. So they'd gone down the, the detailed survey route. We'd gone down the social side, but we both arrived at very, very similar conclusions. Mm. Okay, very good. Well, that's a good case study, isn't it? To, uh, and it, you, I take your point, though, that, you know, the, the, the scale that you're looking at you know, can tend to, you know, give you a better better sense than those smaller smaller groups. But we've only got a couple of more minutes left, and I do want to come uh-huh. on just just a couple of um, other um, topics quickly. Privacy being one, particularly in yeah. government government communications, this notion of you know someone like a Newton out there scouring, you know, watching, listening. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you're only in places where you know you're allowed to be. Um, uh, but just explain that to me and then how would it work for a, for a, a government agency to be able to take advantage of a, of a service that Newton offers in a, um, in, in a way that's got integrity and that's, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I mean, we're very alive to, you know, the sensitivities 
uh, around privacy and obviously the the general directive on privacy that that's uh, coming now has made it a bit of a hot topic, I think, uh, for everyone that's engaged in um, media intelligence. Um, but for us, yes, you know, we appreciate it is a sensitive issue. We only we only harvest publicly available and accessible data. Uh, obviously, in social media, uh, most people are operating um, under aliases. They've got handle names, which isn't their real name. Uh, we don't disclose any offline information around anyone. Um, we don't disclose any information that would allow an individual to be personally identified. Um, so, you know, I hope we, you know, we do everything that's within our power to keep things as, you know, if not anonymized, but certainly um, as, you know, respectful of an individual's privacy as, as it's possible to do so. And to be honest, I'm not really professionally interested in understanding the names of these people. I'm understanding if I'm interested in understanding anything, it, it's crowd behavior. It's what people do, um, you know, en masse, in groups, in response to something. I mean, telling a government department that one person thinks this, I'm not sure how useful that would be to them. Telling a government department that half a million people are saying the same are, or are reacting to a campaign in a very similar way is interesting. And what's interesting is not who those half a million people are, but the fact that there's half a million of them mm. and they're all influencing each other. So, you know, it, it's that behavior. I don't think we need to really focus too too much on who people are when we what we're really looking to do is understand their behavior. But, yeah, no, ab absolutely. It's, it's a sensitive point. I think there is uh, additional sensitivities for governments. Um, but as I say, uh, our focus is on publicly available uh, data. So, so we will only ever analyze what members of the public feel comfortable releasing into the public domain. What's your view about, and this uh, one more question, the, the tech lash? You know, the, the big platforms, the, the power, what we're seeing in the United States, the implementation of the data protection le legislation that's coming into effect yeah. in the mm -hmm. European Union. Where, where is all this going to end up? Um, I think I think basically there's just going to be th things will tighten up in terms of password protection, and there will be a lot of. Um, but he, are the at, regulators? At the are the regu the regulators are obviously on the move. The regulators yes, no, are coming for the platform. So what's going to happen? Yeah. Do you think? Um, I, I think at the moment there will be a lot more. Th things will change at the moment. The big platforms operate largely on an opt-out basis, i.e. we will do this, we will hold this information about you or release this information about you until you tell us not to. Yeah. Okay, so, so it's an opt-out situation. I think the end game for privacy regulation is that everything turns around to be an opt-in, that um, media platforms cannot use the data unless you specifically give your approval for them to do so. 
uh, you know, in much the same way as it happened with. But don't you do it at the? Don't don't you give them the approval at the moment by you know when you when you sign yeah, up? Yeah, you sign. Well, you sign you up know? for the terms and conditions. So that's <laughs> what the regulators all go. That's uh, that's what the regulators all go for. They don't need to say go up. You know, try and enforce change on behalf of two billion Facebook users. All they need to do is sit down with. Facebook in a room and get them to change their T's and C's that say, you know, you now do not have a, gen, you know, carte blanche or a general uh, opt-out scenario here. It's got to be opt-in. Um, you know, it happened with cookies before. Uh, all sites used to just naturally harvest cookie data uh, from web browsers if you landed on that site. Now they actually have to show you something that says, you know, do you agree with our cookie policy? Mm. Um, so that's that's an example where opt-out has become opt-in. And I think it will be the, the, the T's and C's of the main um, social networks that will be targeted for that change. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. I could ask you another half a dozen questions because I find this to be fascinating and I look forward to actually seeing where that works. But to, from my point of view, it's it's then, okay, what does all this mean for us as government communicators? How can we how can we understand and know and and gather this insight, but also understanding those larger contextual changes that are taking place around, you know, those bigger platforms. Um, you know, interestingly, you know, the change in the Facebook algorithm recently yeah. you know, and the input in the impact that's going to have on public information, you know, the fact that fire departments and police departments and all of these, you know, all over the world have been using Facebook as an effective channel, algorithm changes, well, all of a sudden it's a different sort of a game. But anyway, we won't get into that now. Um, that is a conversation for another time. But if people listening to the podcast would be interested, Phil, in having a further conversation mm -hmm. with you or to understand a little bit more about Newton Insight, how might they get in contact with you? Oh, thank you for asking. <laughs> no problem. No, it's just philip.lynch at newtoninsight.net or you can find us on the web at www.newtoninsight.net. So is that Philip with two L's or one? Uh, j just the one L. Just the one. Oh, yeah, my, you, you my, my mom ripped off at birth. The first certificate <laughs> says two, but it's with one L. <laughs> okay, Phil, listen, thanks very much. Thanks for your insights. Thanks for your help. And I think there's a – what we really try to focus in the podcast is try to get some of that actionable stuff where people can now go away and go, right, okay, particularly measurement evaluation. I'll get started today. I'll ask that question. What's my question? What's my problem? What – you know, not those bigger questions, those really narrower questions, and then what's manageable? What can I do to get started? You know, it's like the juggler with the balls, you know, start with two, and as you get good at two, exactly. then start getting three and four and, you know, chainsaws and everything else as we go down. So, yeah, you know, there's, I, there's a lot of value in what you've, uh, in, in what you, the conversation we've had today, and I am very yeah, grateful. If you're, if you're moving on, don't boil the ocean, start simply and build out from there. Excellent. Okay, Phil, well, thank you very much. And to you, the listeners, thank you very much for coming back once again and I look forward to being with you again at the same time next week but for the moment it's bye for now you've been listening to in transition the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector for more visit us at contentgroup.com.au